like to introduce you to the book of Acts this morning as we make our way through the scriptures. It seemed fitting that we would look at Acts. Next here and in Acts we see a number of things that God has designed for us to see this progress of redemption through the scriptures. It's reasonable, it's right for us to see that the way that God works in the Bible that he uh, progressively reveals to us the things that are particularly important for us to learn day by day as those who are following the Lord Jesus. Particularly here we see that in the New Testament. And when we look at the book of Acts, and one of the reasons that these, if you, I don't think overview really is necessarily the right question. It's an exposition in which we, we look at the forest, if you will, instead of the individual trees per se, but we're, we're looking at the way that God is working uh, redemptively and the way that he sets before us as his people uh, how we should think, how we should live. And the book of Acts certainly does that. It lays out for us the ways that the gospel interacts with a culture bent on itself, controlled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan and his minions. And so it would be important for us as we look at the book of Acts here to consider really the culture uh, that the gospel is presented to the people. In your hearing, you heard Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 18. Let's spend a moment looking at that before we make our way meth- methodology uh, through, the, through the whole book here. Acts 26. And so, the Apostle Paul here, he has already appealed to Caesar. He's on his way to Rome. He's already called to himself the Ephesian elders from Miletus. He's already explained to us... Uh, what it is that the Lord has done. He's here looking, appealing to King Agrippa. King Agrippa has no bearing on the ruling that Caesar would ultimately make. Uh, He is, he does have a background, he is a Jew, and so he understands these things. And it does, as the Apostle Paul says, he he is very encouraged. King Agrippa, uh, you know, even, uh, uh, I think, presents himself as one who has no hostility toward the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, he even in his the statement here that uh, begins uh, verse 1 of chapter 26, he, he even uses the, the second person. He doesn't say, I have given you permission. He, he uses a different voice. You have permission to speak, Paul. And so we see that he uh, is, Paul is encouraged by this. He says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I make my defense today. And we can see, we have insight here in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, spent from beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Verse 5, they've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was known by those around him to be an absolute genius regarding the Word of God. He was and did sit under the teacher Gamaliel, who is mentioned in the book in Acts 5 as well as Acts 22. The Apostle Paul was recognized as one who understood very deeply the depths of the Scriptures that God had revealed. And he, of course... Ultimately, is standing on this idea that Christianity is not a new religion. But it is the absolute certain fulfillment revealed in the Old Testament of biblical religion. Paul affirms that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made by God. And so we see that here. And he really pins a significant part of his declaration here on something that might surprise you. And that is something that particularly distinguishes the Pharisees from the Sadducees. And that is the resurrection. The Apostle Paul says here, Why is it thought, in verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
Why is that so incredible to you? It's not a new thing. Uh, The dead have been raised. The Lord Jesus raised the dead. Why is it so odd that Christ himself would be raised from the dead? And so he continues to make his defense there. He affirms that the same thing that's being done to him, he did to others. Verse 11, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And he was given a charge not unlike the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah, verse 18, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. A little window into the Apostle Paul and his defense there with Agrippa. We see that he makes a number of defense Defenses. Uh, he speaks a number of times in the run-up, even to Acts 26 there. He, he does sometimes have a different way about, a, a different uh, perhaps emphasis on what it is that he says, but I, it seemed appropriate that we would look at what he said to King Agrippa as we look at a focus today on what does the book of Acts reveal to us ultimately as God's people. And I'd like for you to focus really on four different things. I intend to try to focus on four different heads today. The very first is the shortest, and that is simply this idea of the advent of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, isn't born in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. It's, the Holy Spirit is obviously uncreated. It's a part of the Trinity. We see the Holy Spirit even in the very beginning of the Scriptures in Genesis where we see the Spirit of God and so forth. But nonetheless, we see that in the book of Acts... The Holy Spirit is uh, quite apparent and central. Secondly, the idea simply of opposition, of the way that the gospel will bring in the culture that we live in, this culture of the sinful world, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, that we will see opposition. Thirdly, Thirdly, uh, associated with this phrase that we'll notice a number of times in the book of Acts, this Jesus. This Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is Messiah. This is the Christ. This idea that we see that part of the gospel, of course, is the urgency of distinguishing not only what to expect from the Old Testament declarations of Messiah, but how it how it draws me and what it means to me personally. If God had given to us a Messiah that was a political leader that was, that was uh, bent on reforming politically the nation of Israel and that would make it uh, yet another kingdom like that of David's or Solomon's, and we would see that our own personal need is far different than the Messiah that we've been given. This Jesus, we'll see that in the book of Acts. And then lastly, this concept of community. The concept of the Christian community. That was apparently quite different, even than that of the synagogue, in a number of ways, and we'll see that here in this passage of Scripture. Again, the Spirit, the simple opposition, which uh, you're no stranger to, likely. Thirdly, this Jesus. And fourthly, the idea of community. First, we look at the advent of the Spirit, and we'll look no further than chapter 1 and verse 8. Chapter 1 of Acts and verse 8. These are the words of Christ. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Now, you might, if you were to read through the book of Acts in one sitting, and I would certainly encourage you to do that, you might pass over chapter 1, verse 8, and it might not seem to be that distinct to you. But what is he saying to us here? You will receive... It's not as if this is an everyday occurrence, right? In other words, what we see here is that our union to the Lord Jesus Christ brings us into union with this all-powerful Spirit. And we could look again at the ministry of the Lord Jesus and see who, who did He primarily impact? 
It's actually a pretty small number of people. And we see that the Holy Spirit's power, the Spirit of Christ even, we see that this is very unique. And this is part of our own personal experience with the Lord Jesus. And we should take to ourselves the recognition that God is working through the power of the Spirit in our day. And that there was this transition. When the Lord Jesus, He said that unless I go to my Father, what? You'll not have the Spirit. Right. So, we see the urgent importance of the work of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit. And we see that largely introduced to us in the book of Acts. Now, secondly, this idea of opposition. This idea of opposition. We, in our culture, really largely in the world culture that we live in, we are persuaded... We are inundated. The air that we breathe is such that we can and should live in such a way uh, as, as that uh, all will think well of us. As a matter of fact, we could look at passages of Scripture and support that statement with the Bible. And that would be, that would be um, an oversimplified statement for sure. But nonetheless, we we could say that we are perhaps persuaded that if I say things in the right way, or if I go about my manner of life in the right way, then then all will be well. But the reality is, is that simply isn't true. And we see that particularly the culture of the world comes into a significant clash, a deathly clash with the gospel. We are not strangers. Our own reality, even in a basically peaceable area, we are not strangers to the, the passion and the polarity that religion, that biblical religion brings to even a simple conversation. Let's look and see the sweep of the work of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Acts. At this opposition, we write out the gate here in chapter 2, verse 13. The coming of the Holy Spirit, it shows up here in chapter 2. And immediately in verse 13, we we see, excuse me, in in, uh, chapter 2 here, verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then verse 13, others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. The Holy Spirit's at work. And we meet immediately with opposition. Does it shock any of us that Satan never takes a day off? Satan isn't omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He isn't all-knowing. Satan is a created being. But he has 6,000 years of experience. And he's got a lot of minions that follow and work for him. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Peter and John before the council. We could begin in verse 1 as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And you want to say, well, no, no, no. I mean, what, 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 what's so offensive about that? They're, they're speaking about what is true and right. But we never see this after-action report that, uh, you know, that Peter and John had where they said, you know, if we'd only, if we'd only said this, maybe they would have wouldn't have thrown us in prison. We don't, we don't find that. We see that they, they took, and they, and they, 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 they took without really thinking that this opposition would come and they pressed on. The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees were not joyful about Christ, but they were annoyed. 
as they proclaim Jesus' resurrection from the dead. As a matter of fact, in verse 18 of chapter 4, we see that they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We charge you, the authorities in the lives of Peter and John said, we charge you not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, yes, sir, thank you very much. I'll never say Jesus again. Is that what they said? No, that's not at all what they said. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than uh, to God, then you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In the most gracious and courteous way possible, they said, You have happened what occurred to us and stay silent about it. Christ has made them whole. And they can do no other than to speak of the name of Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 17. Yet again, the apostles who were arrested and freed, the high priest rose up, verse 17 of chapter 5, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Captured and beaten and released again, we notice here in verse 40 of chapter 5. Chapter 8, verse 1. After the stoning of Stephen, the Saul here approves of his execution. There arose on a day a great on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So, what happened? Is this out of the? work of God here? Did this take God by surprise? Well, you might recall in chapter 1, in chapter 1, what did the Lord Jesus say? Well, we read verse 8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what's the implication in chapter 8? Well, the implication is that in the chronology between chapters 1 and chapter 8, perhaps the apostles were wondering and planning trips uh, and other places in the world to speak the gospel, but they hadn't done it yet. But they will now, because they can't stay in Jerusalem any longer. Because the one who would be sent and scattered... All to the parts of the earth is the one that actually was used to instigate the scattering, and that is Saul, who we know, of course, as the Apostle Paul. Paul enters the scene seemingly as a one-man army. He's on a crusade. He's on a crusade, but what did he do? He jumped in a puddle of goodness. And he spread that goodness all over the earth. And then he went after it as one who is redeemed. He splattered the goodness of Christ all over the earth, meaning to do otherwise. This opposition we see that our Lord has used, not as one who is this opportunist, but as one from the foundation of the world decided to do it in this way. Opposition. Chapter 9, verse 4 and following, we have the conversion of Saul. Paul's converted and told that he will face persecution every step of the way. Verse 16 of chapter 9, For I will show him, that is the Lord Jesus is saying to Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Did it ever shock you? The kind of work that the Apostle Paul did? 
I mean, he was like this fiery, this fiery special agent for the religious establishment of the day. And now all of the tables are turned. He's on the other side. Right? He's been compromised in a good way. He's been redeemed. He's a changed man. And he understands the tactics. And God is using him mightily. Chapter 13. Here they're working through Antioch, verse 45 of chapter 13, when the Jews saw the crowds, the crowds that were listening intently to Paul and Barnabas, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In chapter 14, verse 19, we see that Paul is stoned at Lystra and left for dead. And he makes this statement in verse 22. And he said that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But thankfully that's not that doesn't apply to us, right? What a relief. Did you think you were going to get to heaven via a chauffeur? You know, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and faithful are there as they anticipate Vanity Fair. The evangelist comes to them and he says, one or both of you will seal your commitment to Christ by your blood and Vanity Fair and Christian thoughtfully says, well, can we not go around the city? And he says, if you were to avoid the city of Vanity Fair, then you must go out of the world. You must go out of the world. And so the reality is is that for reasons known only to God, our world, our world is this Vanity Fair. And we, we should be reminded day after day that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Opposition to the Word of God and the ways of God and the culture that is created in our lives and in our homes because of what God has done, those things are in absolute opposition to the ways of the world. And we will, we will see that and hear that and feel that. Chapter 16, verse 19. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison at Philippi. And after casting out a demon from a slave girl and ending her master's financial gain. A fascinating story. Because we have a number of stories where angels lead the apostles out of prison. But in this story we see he uses an earthquake. But he does it in a way that we might not expect. The earthquake comes right here, right in Philippi. The doors are open, the chains fall off, and what do they do? They don't do anything. <laughs> they don't go anywhere. They stay right there. Why'd they do that? Well, I reckon it has something to do with the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer is about to, uh, is about to kill himself because he understands what happens when prisoners get set free. As a matter of fact, when Peter was brought out of the prison, the, the guards there were killed. 
the jailer and his family are converted. Paul cries out in verse 28 of chapter 16, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What is he seeing? What is he seeing in Paul and Silas? He, he looks at these men and he says, Something different is going on here. <laughs> you ever been in a first century prison? Me neither. Thankful for that. The jailer understands the absolute incongruity. There's, a, there's an open door, literally an open door, for all of the prisoners to go. And what did Paul do? Well, apparently, this humble nothing of a man persuaded not only his companion, but all the other people in there not to go anywhere for the sake of of the jailer. And we see the rest, as they say, is history. In 17.9, once he gets out of jail, he's flung out of Thessalonica, and then he's thrown out of Berea as well. In 19.23, opposition and emphasis from the silversmith Demetrius has him flung out of there. Heads on to Greece in chapter 20, verse 3. And there a plot was made against him by the Jews, and he decided to return through Macedonia. You've seen these movies uh, where, where the, uh, the special agent is on the run. He has the world before him, uh, an apparently endless bank account access to multiple passports, finds himself on all kinds of flights and boats and ships and everything else in the world. And all you got to do is read the book of Acts and you get the same thing. It's right here. This is the Apostle Paul. He just decides, you know, that instead of going to Syria, hey, we're going to go to Macedonia instead. Check it out. We're being thrown out of Greece right now, okay? So we're going to do something different and we trust the Lord has something to do with that. In 21-27, as we see sort of the beginning of the end for the Apostle Paul, the place from which he will not escape, incarceration, he's arrested in the temple after Asian Jews saw him there. The second head, again, is opposition. Have you accepted the fact that a thoroughgoing walk with Christ will not be considered acceptable to the world? It will not be acceptable to the culture you live in. Walking faithfully with Christ will not even be acceptable to your own internal sinful inclinations. It's easy enough to see that the world we live in is in opposition to the gospel of Christ. Many of the wise thinkers of our day make a mockery. They laugh at the Lord Jesus and His followers. But what we haven't perhaps considered ultimately is that the culture that we live in has so changed the way that we think that our own internal ways of thinking are in opposition to the gospel. I'm going to refer a few ideas that have come from a recent book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Human Mind or the Human Self. And in this he draws attention to a number of things. One of those is that as God's people we must learn to distinguish between sensory aesthetics and our core beliefs and practices. Sensory aesthetics in our core beliefs and practices. One of our own elders has indicated that if 
you're drawn to our fellowship simply because of the fellowship, you won't be able to stay. Because there's far more to us than the sensory aesthetics of our fellowship. There's doctrine, right? And doctrine insisted upon by the Apostle Paul and the first century teachers must be insisted upon by the church of our day. So please don't allow your eyes and minds to glaze over this idea because this is very, very important. When you allow compelling emotional appeals to draw you away into a way of thinking that diminishes biblically accessible principles and bedrock foundational truths, you are simply being involved in what some have termed death culture. We're surrounded by people that spend hours and hours watching the next video their phone tells them to watch. Did you know that? Do you do that? On that video, they'll see an emotional personal testimony with dazzling computer-assisted images about anything from toenail fungus to weightlifting to misapplied and misunderstood theology. Yes, even those who would mean well have persuaded themselves that their slick presentations on podcasts are merely a wise use of technology when they are merely involving themselves in the same sort of century-rich discussions to draw you into thinking a certain way. Yet how many of these have really done the trial work of rigorous study into faithful biblical theology and the text of Scripture? This is our culture. I would like to give you an example of this. We are rightly and diametrically opposed to the concept of abortion in our nation. And we should celebrate the introduction of sonogram machines in pregnancy care centers. That's a very good thing, and it has had a huge impact on people saving the lives of their babies. We should rejoice in that. However, we need to recognize that what has occurred with the sonogram machine and the advent of an individual being able to see a little child in her womb is not an embrace of biblical morality. It is not an embrace of biblical morality. It is being drawn into the same exact sensory aesthetic of our day. And you and I recognize that those same people can be and were apparently drawn away from that previous to seeing the sonogram. This is the culture that we live in. I'm not sure if any of you are picking up on the very hard and very close association we've recently had with this very thing. Our own recent experience proves this truth. Without the accompanying doctrine, we not only don't have biblical community, we have death works. Death works. So again, our thinking, we are drawn multi-generationally. This is not something that just occurred last week or last year or even a generation ago. Literally for hundreds of years, we have been drawn into this way of thinking in which we literally cast aside. How many times have you heard yourself say, I don't know and basically I don't care what the truth is. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. Opposition. Not only from the outside but from our own internal understanding of how to go about life. We see that in the book of Acts. In the same paradigm, these will see every aspect of biblical religion displaced by what is vile. Our modern culture doesn't say biblical religion is untrue, but that it's disgusting and distasteful. And this is also very close to home for us. There's no, there's no concern about truth. Those who embrace a biblical understanding of life are termed as those who hate. Again, this is an appeal to that which is aesthetic, 
to somehow this perverted beauty of things, this fakery. Some believers would even say that they're loving people in a way that also falls into this category. You may have said yourself or thought that Scripture's rigorous moral standard for personal living or for management of the life of a church is too rigid, it's unloving, it's unfeeling. It's likely that in this you haven't realized how you've been drawn into the culture that has been grinding away at the ways of God for centuries. What has God said? When we get to heaven, we'll be able to look at Christ and affirm that we did our best to do what you said. The biblical record validates that our Lord was kindly and approachable and also capable of righteous anger. That He was, in fact, God in the flesh. The biblical record also indicates that Jesus never considered what the culture thought of Him or His ways of living and thinking. Jesus did not present to the world simply a different path upon which to walk into eternity. He presented true life as contrasted with death. The ways of God are essentially and radically different than the world. We must learn this. The ways of God are essentially and radically different than the world. The ways God would have us think are radically different than what you are inclined to think in your own wisdom. The ways of God are profoundly about every day, not merely the Lord's day. Yes, we're opposed at every front. But our own thinking has to be sanctified every day. The ways of God, even as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, are essentially different. That means dramatically different. It's a a completely different idea. It's profoundly different. It's not the difference between taking a car and an airplane. It's the difference between doing one thing and another. Completely different. That's the second head. The opposition to our culture of the gospel. Thirdly, this Jesus is the Christ. My very first book study that I did in the Navy I had a commander propose to me, why couldn't I simply retain the moral principles and leave Christ out of it? Of course, I told him I couldn't do that, and I didn't do that. This Jesus is the Christ. I draw your attention, we'll go back through the book of Acts here, chapter 2, verses 22 to 33. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. By the way, if you didn't read anything else in the book of Acts, but simply the sermons that Peter and the Apostle Paul uh, preached here, you would, you would be doing well. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I would skip all the way to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. The one David spoke of, to be resurrected and made to make known the paths of life. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 23. Chapter 3, 16 through 23. His name, by faith in His name, are we saved. God foretold through the mouths of the prophets that Christ would suffer. This has been fulfilled. This Jesus... This Jesus, spoken of by the prophet Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. You shall listen whatever he tells you. This Jesus, the one that Moses spoke of, the one that would follow Moses. This Jesus, this is the Messiah. 
Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Messiah that was rejected. Chapter 9, verses 22, 20 and 22. The Son of God, Jesus is the Christ, this Jesus. Chapter 10, verses 38 through 43. Chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Peter is preaching here with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. To him all the prophets bear witness. This infuriated the Jewish establishment. This Jesus. He was no political ruler. He went about and healed people who were sick. He proclaimed the truths of God. He he urged people to recognize that their greatest salvation was not in a political entity. It wasn't about being another great Israel. It was about a life and death problem that they had with their Creator. It was that they were going nowhere. They were going to hell without this Jesus. This Jesus. Chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. I'll begin in verse 1. Paul and Silas, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. On the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This Jesus. This Jesus. The Messiah who came to save His people from their sins. The Messiah who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Not the Jesus that culture made up. Not the Jesus that would never offend you or harm you or never make one feel guilty or always leave you alone while you play your life away. That's not Jesus. It's not the Jesus who is a therapist. The Jesus who has a great desire that you would feel good about yourself. That's not Jesus. That's what Peter and Paul are saying. It's this Jesus. This Jesus. This Messiah. Spoken of in all of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul and Peter help us understand what is the Bible about? It's about this Jesus. This Jesus. Lastly, my last head is simply this idea of community. This idea of community. We sweep back through the book of Acts again. Chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Chapter 2, 42 to 47. The fellowship of the believers. I think I heard a sermon here one time about this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. I know that at least some of you here, you've moved into a home, you've had family members who are unbelievers come, and they see what happens when the church shows up, and they say, who, what is happening here? What, what just happened? <laughs> Where are all these people from? What, 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 where'd, the, where'd, the, where'd the fried chicken come from? I want to know that. Right? Where, where, whose pickup truck is that? You know what I'm saying? This, this community is unique. It's what God has created for His people. It's all founded upon that which was rejected, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see the same things in chapter 2, 
verses 32 to 37. We're considering this community. We look over here at chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. 11, 19 to 26. So here's the church in Antioch. And we'll pick up Philip here. Philip is one of the deacons that was selected way back. Philip shows up in Caesarea. I think he passed through Antioch. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. I'm in verse 19 of chapter 11. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, that is Barnabas, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And what did he do next? So here we are in Antioch, the church in Antioch. There are massive amounts of believers that come. Barnabas is encouraging them. Barnabas is known as a man full of grace. What occurs to Barnabas? These people need to understand the doctrines of God. Where does he go next? Barnabas goes to Tarsus. Why in the world does he go there? Where is Saul? We need Paul. We've got all these people. And they need to understand the things of God. And it's important that we see in the community of God that teaching is central. And to the unteachable, it's infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. If you approach the ways of God, the Word of God, the culture that God is making in your own life and in your home as one who is unteachable, then you have just literally removed yourself from the community of God. Barnabas goes in search of Saul for one reason. What did he do for those 12 years in the desert? He came to understand the fullness of God's plan. And he was laying it out for them. And Barnabas understood it. The centrality of teaching, I draw your attention also to chapter 2, chapter 12, excuse me, in verses 12 through 19. Peter is rescued. This is this interesting narrative with Rhoda, the girl who goes to the door and doesn't go to the door. And that's the centrality of prayer. Peter was kept in prison in chapter 12, verse 5, but earnest prayer for him was made. Verse 12, chapter 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. What were they doing there? They were praying. Except it looks like sometimes they prayed like we do because they didn't believe it all the time. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting, no, that's Peter. What were you guys just praying about? Peter, right? Well, he's at the front door right now. Go get him. Is that how you pray? Is that how we pray? Oh God, please make this happen. Oh wow, check it out. It just happened. Community. The idea of community has been evacuated of the concepts of bodily proximity and presence. We really think in our culture that there is this community somewhere out there that's virtual, that we're part of this thing, right? We, we have persuaded ourselves that there can be community without bodily presence. It's not happening. Try, try as you may, it's not going to happen. We rightly mock the concept of virtual church, but then we may falter in our commitment to attend regularly. Paul comments in 1 Corinthians 15.33 that bad company ruins good morals. Our moral consciousness is shaped by our community. And this is why our church community needs to be so strong. And your attendance and your involvement in our church gatherings has multi-generational value. 
The first century church was the hub of activity for believers. And as I mentioned, this apparently represents a significant change in the lives of these individuals. The redeemed didn't really do life with a different group of people. They did life as opposed to the alternative of life, which is... Death. You do life in Christ. The only alternative to life in Christ is death. Death. To to be a believer is to be essentially different than others. It's not about doing the same worldly things with believers. It's about doing some essentially different things with believers. Our walk is different. You say, well, I don't know how different is it. Let me ask you a question. When you read Genesis chapter 3, there's an exchange that occurs in Genesis 3 that may, may repel you. The eating of a piece of fruit is exchanged for what? Death. And you say, well, where's the equity in that? Really? Because I eat a piece of fruit, I die eternally, that I impact everyone that follows me because I do this? And we say that our lives aren't dramatically different. And then we look at our lives. Our lives purchased. How? By a man with a lot of money? No. By the creator of the universe dying on a cross. And you want to insist that you live like the world. When we are in a society of people who have been individually and intentionally and personally approached by none other than the same one that approached the Apostle Paul on that road. that died for you on a cross. We are blood-bought people. Let us not go again to the pigsty. But let us be a people who rightly regale in the goodness of our God. Let's pray.